Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. Davina Stanley has helped smart people from all over the world to clarify and communicate complex ideas for the past 25 plus years. She first learned about structured thinking while working at McKinsey in Hong Kong in the mid-90s and was approved to teach the Pyramid Principle by Barbara Minto in 2009. She offers skill-building programs for individuals and teams, founding the Clarity First program in 2017 and Clarity Thought Partners in 2009. Davina is the co-author of The So What Strategy, a short book which helps executives get to the nub of their message. Davina, thank you for joining the show. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. I want to start by exploring a question. Um, Are teachers born or made? Oh, very good one. Very good one. I'm a fourth generation teacher and yet I didn't really love the classroom. So I trained as a kindergarten teacher originally. I grew up thinking anything was possible, but had no idea what anything was. I grew up on a farm in the country and a lot of my family were teachers. So on my mother's side and the women on my father's side as well. So it seemed like the natural thing to do, given I had no idea what my other choices were. I landed with a classroom of 25 four-year-old boys and found I wasn't so suited to that. So uh, that didn't last very long, but I did come back to it fairly quickly. So I leapfrogged into administrative sort of work just to pay the rent and all those sorts of things. I didn't have the default backstop of going back to the family. So I stayed in the city and did, you know, just worked in admin and so on for a while until somebody said to me, you should go back to uni. And then I did. And long story short, I ended up many years later back working with adults. And I have to say, I really love that. I really love that. Do you prefer adults to children? Yes, I do. I do. I think if I'd stayed in children's teaching, and not that I prefer adults to children, (laughs) well well asked, um, but I prefer teaching adults to teaching children. Although I think if I'd stayed in school education, I probably would have gone down the road of special ed or something like that. Right. So rather than just a classroom full of, you know, rowdy young people. Yeah. So what is it about um, teaching adults that you that you enjoy? I like the interaction and I like being able to help people. And when I was at McKinsey, I had the really terrific chance of learning a discipline called structured thinking. And it's fantastic. So I just love getting better at helping people. I just really enjoy it. I can't explain any any more than that other than I just I find it quite fun. And I love meeting new people. I love the new challenges. I love, um, you know, it's never boring. I thought it would be, to be really truthful. Yeah. But no, it's I find it really interesting. So adults... I understand, and um, the way they learn is often shaped by their experiences at school. So when they go when they go back in the classroom, if they've had a good experience at school, they're probably more open to learning. In a corporate world, I suspect you teach people who are being forced to learn and people who are choosing to learn. So I, I guess it'd be interesting, just yeah, some of the experiences you have with with different people, different groups, and yes, okay. I'm interested in your point there about people choosing to learn and people who are forced to learn. So one of the reasons I started Clarity First, my public program, is yeah. because I wanted to work specifically with people who wanted to learn, and I love that. I really love that. I love the longer term relationships as well, and I love the motivation from people who are there. Um, in the corporate world, there are a surprising number who really do like to learn. There are some who are not so keen and you can pick them, even on, on teams, you right. can pick them. Yeah. Um, so I, I take that as a form of sport 
actually, to draw them out. I don't let people sit there and just hide behind no camera. You know, it's, it's look out, I'm, I'm on to you. So that's, yeah. a, that's a stern school teacher coming out. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I know, but we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun. But um, I just think people are letting themselves down if they don't give it a go. And, you know, sometimes I understand if they've got just a way too much work on and they're part of a cohort and the timing doesn't suit them. I fully, fully understand that. And I think there are times where we're, if people are, less willing. It's usually because of that rather than they don't want to be there. I remember I've had one cohort um, where I thought, oh my gosh, this is like pulling teeth. This is just awful. Um, and none of them wanted to be there. They were quite senior. Yeah. Uh, they'd been told to go and they thought, you know, I know all this already. This is just dreadful. I don't want to be here. And and that's just awful. I don't, don't enjoy that at all. But that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare, I find. And in your in your experience with these the, the adults, the, the rate of learning, so the, the the acquisition of skill, how how does that work? I mean, they, you hear about you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Oh yes, you can. You can. Yes, you can. Oh yes. So I think there's two things there: the rate of learning skill yeah. and the rate of acquiring knowledge. So the rate of acquiring knowledge can be quite fast. Got it. Concept. Can see it. Fine. Got it. The rate of actually being able to do it, I think, is hugely varied because you are in a corporate environment. Um, there's huge variety in what you have to do it with right. or do it on. And so in our world, we're helping people clarify their messaging so yes. they can communicate. And we, we look at three steps, design your strategy, develop your storyline, deliver your communication. Yeah. Okay easy. But the design your strategy piece is really quite tricky and huge variability. You know, who are your stakeholders really? How do you work that out? And what do you do if you've tried a few times to get something across and you think you've got your strategy and your stakeholders just won't do it? You know, what do you do? So there can be a whole lot of ambiguity around that and maturity and wisdom that comes in as well as just cunning and experience. Um, so I think you're bringing a whole lot of things together. You're bringing together conceptual thinking ability, analytical thinking ability, business acumen, influence skills. You're bringing all of those things together in one thing. And so most of us are stronger on some of those than others. Yes. So it, it, that's it's a really hard question to answer. It's hugely varied, hugely varied. So, so given that, there are people who would think they're coming just for a quick tune-up on their communication skills and they'll be disappointed, whereas there's others, everything kind of magically comes together almost. Yes, yes. And I think a lot of people have seen great communication at play and they've tried copying or they copy their predecessor or they look around for somebody who's really good at it and they try and mimic and they get a few tactics that really help them and that's great. But then it only takes them so far. So if they want to engage people who come from a different background to them, which is where I think, you know, you sort of go mid-career, you start popping out of your discipline into a more broad-based decision-making body. Once you start getting there, you know, you've got a lot of other challenges to factor in. So it's only adapting. Adapting. Adapting, but also uh, clarifying, because what you could get away with, with people who speak your lingo, is very different than people who don't. So I I think what surprised me the most is the idea, um, reading your book and and sort of having seen some of your courses, is 
there's not a magic form. Well, there actually is a magic formula for communicating, but it's not the magic formula you would you would expect it to be. What would it's, you expect it to be? So it's a, I'm not, you're not supposed to ask me questions. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I guess, and, and and it's funny that you sort of think it's about. Well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to answer your question, but because it's about I mean, it is it is but I think of it more as speaking more clearly, or pausing, or breathing correctly, or delivering some insight with confidence. It's it's that kind yes, of thing. That's what what yes. you think of when you think about clear communication. Yes, it's the it's all the the end part of our process yes. that I think comes to mind for a lot of people. How do I write better? How do I use PowerPoint better? How do I, like you said, deliver yes. my messaging better? But actually working out what that messaging is and, and how you should actually deliver it yes. is 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 no small thing. And, you know, it's it's that's where the fun is. I think the other thing we think of with communication is often the more you write, the more it gives a sense that you have knowledge. So this sort of volume over um, ease of access. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I think of three different dimensions when I think of really great business communication yeah. and defining it specifically to, you know, work or professional yeah. communication. Um, it's firstly, it's got to be clear. It's yeah. got to have great clarity. Yeah. And to me, that means the messages have got to jump off the page. So they're really easy to find. Yeah. So you look at something very quickly, you can see what the message is yeah. or you're hearing, you can work it out. You, yeah. You've got it. Yeah. So that's number one, but that's just basic. Baseline. Yeah. The next level is it's got to be high quality. Yeah. So it's got to be a message that adds huge value. It's got to be really insightful. So a high quality insight. So that's great. And then the third one is velocity. Right. And that's around both creating and delivering and then using. Right. So be able to really quickly create the message yeah. and then deliver the message, have it absorbed yeah. quickly, but then also have it such a thing that can be useful in a business. So it propels the business velocity. So I think clarity, quality, velocity are the three things that are, are really key to to get right. One, one of the things I, I find interacting with a, a lot of smart people is um, a sense that every time you say something, it has to be new and it has to be insightful. Mm -hmm. um, yet some of the most, uh, I guess, compelling advertising campaigns, which is you know strong form of messaging, will be repetitive and even the same phrase for decades. So how can you encourage, I guess, smart people to repeat themselves or is, oh. is that? <laughs> <laughs> and they need to, don't yeah, they? Yeah. You know, I'm working with a CEO at the moment to help her develop what we're calling her stump speeches right. and to have a small number of issues that she needs to convey regularly. You know, you often call to speak at a meeting or you need to contribute and you need to have common themes that go again and again so they actually stick. And so there are three topics that we want to work on with her and we're doing exactly that. And the idea is that she can top and tail them but have them in a pocket anywhere, anytime, and just loop back to them again and again. And I think there's a great sense of comfort for her that comes with that because as a new CEO yeah. and in a, a very difficult position in her organisation as well, regardless of being new, it's, this is a big task for a new CEO, yeah. um, she needs that confidence that she can just have something to say and be confident she's not going to muck it up yeah. and that she's going to keep everyone online. So 
I think there's something to having comfort, but you're right. It's really hard to remember that you've got to say it just so very often for people to catch it and for it to stick. Yeah. I think there's a tendency to go, I told you that. So, Oh, I've, absolutely. Yeah. Guilty of that myself. Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. So you didn't uh, last long in the, in the classroom. No. You've built longevity. What was it about the classroom you didn't like? I think there, there were a whole lot of things. I think my personal situation was wrong. Right. I was too young. I was 20. Right. I'd moved interstate on my own. Yeah. I had zero family support. And it was back in the days before Facebook, Instagram, and right. back in the days of long distance phone calls yeah. too. So that cost a lot of money yeah. to call home. Um, so there was that. And the situation I was in politically in the school was unfortunate. Right. Um, so I think it was just too much, yeah. you know, and I'm actually introverted. So I love being with people, yeah. but I think five days, six hours, plus parents topping and tailing it and yeah. teachers who are often extroverted and like to chat, yes. I just think that was all a bit much. Um, so it was, you know, I got very ill, actually. Um, so I had every kind of throat infection. You can imagine I lost 15 kilos in weight um, in about four months. And um, there was a whole lot of other things going on that I won't bore you with. So it was a very complicated sort of time. Yeah. And the uh, infant mistress at the school sort of scooped me up and, you know, took me into her home and fed me <laughs> and helped me write my reports. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, then I just sort of started again. And the school was very, very supportive. They'd made some very big mistakes and they were very, very supportive. So, um, you know, it was a sad story, but it was a good story. They said, look, get well, come back next year. Yeah. And I said, I don't think so, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you, but no, I'm yeah. going to find something else to do. <laughs> yeah. So I did. And, you know, I just took it from there. So um, Brenda is that woman and she's 91. She's actually here in Sydney this week and oh, she's okay. awesome. So yeah, mentors, brilliant, fabulous people to have around you. And, and is that something you think people should all be encouraged to, to find someone like that? Absolutely, to have one and to be one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And do you do, yes. this, do, you do the same for, for others or do you feel about being a teacher, you're already doing that for, for, for many people? I do it a bit as part of my job, for right. sure. Yeah. But no, I, I, I love being able to help other people in other ways too. Yes, I've got a couple of young women particularly and, you know, young men actually in my life that I, yeah. I really enjoy, you know, nurturing them, yeah, and helping them, yeah. So you moved to the city. You, you'd grown up on, on, on a farm, you mm -hmm. mentioned. So maybe just talk a little bit about that, mm -hmm. that sort of childhood and yeah. the, the, the contrast. Yeah, yeah, big contrast. So uh, I grew up on a potato farm. We had 800-something acres. Wow. I was the oldest of four. And we were on a state border. So we were just in Victoria but going to school in South Australia. So if I turned right outside my gate, I rode my bike three miles to the end of the school bus and then spent an hour and a half on the bus to get to school. If I turned left, it was a summer track only, and it was 12 miles to the local primary school. Right. Interesting, funny thing, I was working at a bank a few years ago and we were working with farming finance and I said oh yeah I can picture that la 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 and then this fellow said oh you know why I said oh, I grew up on a farm oh really you know he looked you know surprised by that and we got talking and he said oh where did you grow up I said oh in Victoria oh where yeah. I said oh Western Victoria oh where oh past Hamilton oh where? And apparently I had this sort of rude look on my face. <laughs> so you have to say, why do you keep asking me? <laughs> and and he kept asking. And, and I told him and he goes, huh, I live on that. I, I grew up on the other end of that road. Okay. I said, really? We would have gone to primary school together, except the road was a bit wet in winter. Uh -huh. So I wouldn't have actually, 
um, been able to get there in winter. So he went to the Victorian school. He went to the Victorian school right. and I went round to the South right. Australian school. Our parents knew each other. Right. So there you go. Funny thing. Um, so it was a um, very free sort of life. Yeah. You know, it was quite fine for me to walk to my friend who lived. Who went, we went to school together. It was two miles away to her house. So I'd just walk across the paddocks to see her if I felt like it or to another friend the other way. I would get on my bike when I was older and just ride for 10 miles to the tennis court and meet a friend and play tennis. Um, so that was very free. Um, I had another sister who was a couple of years younger than me and then we had a surprise brother and sister appear a bit later. So they were 12 and 14 years younger than I was. So just when I was becoming a teenager, uh, suddenly I had two little children to care for, which was interesting. And, you know, I adored them. It's probably part of what made me think I'd go into teaching Um it also meant being a teenager in that sort of environment wasn't so fun, yes. but um, also probably why I was quite eager to move to Adelaide to go to teacher's college. Um, and I moved into town actually for my final year of school okay. because looking after the babies and doing well at school were not compatible, you know. It just didn't have the time with an hour and a half on the bus. So I did get a car at 16, though. That was really cool. That's nice. I had to go do the shopping because mum couldn't right. get to town. So I had to do the weekly shop. So In I had to South car. Australia or Victoria? Uh, South Australia. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So was it, I mean, I'm imagining um, Nevada and having its um, you know casinos on one you know on the border and <laughs> Mexico and the US and all this kind of stuff. There isn't any big arbitrage between Victoria and South Australia. There is a bit of an arbitrage yeah. because we had a South Australian phone number, okay, which meant I could have a South Australian driver's license, right. which meant I could get it at 16 oh, instead of 17, 18, 18. All right, yeah, that was wow. quite quite pleasing. About two years of freedom, quite pleasing. Mm. That's good. So having left the farm, you've gone mm -hmm. to the city. You've mm -hmm. decided teaching is mm -hmm. too difficult. Mm -hmm. or not mm -hmm. for you, mm -hmm. um, What's uh, what happened next? Mm -hmm. So I worked for a while in, um, <clears throat> I was a temp at first, just yeah. like reception, whatever, anything I could get. And then um, there was this big thing called a financial conniption back then. Yeah. So we're talking late 80s. Yeah. And so I looked around and I thought, you know what, I think things look a bit tough. I'm actually going to get a permanent job. That seemed like a good thing to do. So I'd been temping at a company that was then called ICI Australia. It's now called Orica. Yeah. And I got a permanent position as a secretary in the corporate affairs department. And so one of the things they did there was their company magazine. Right, okay. And because I was a bit bored, as a secretary, and I used to rewrite all my boss's letters and things, and um, I started helping out with the magazine because right. I thought that would be fun to do and I had time, so I did. And so long story short, um, I was chatting with my boss and he said, you really should go back to uni. I went, oh, okay, good. Well, what would I study? He said, well, if you like this sort of thing, go study journalism or public relations or something like that. Okay, where would I do that? Oh, have a look at RMIT maybe? Or I said, okay, all right, so I did. And I started and I studied at night and – so on, and I got married about then too. I got married quite young. And uh, long story, uh, ended up married and then moving to Hong Kong. I'd never been overseas before. Uh, so I had one trip because Andrew said something like, Will you make sure you like Hong Kong because I'd like to live there one day? Okay, all right, best go. So anyway, we moved to Hong Kong. And you're married by this point as well. Oh, so. uh, no, that was, a, that was probably six months before the right. wedding. Okay. So three months. Conditional. <laughs> three months before the wedding, I took off on a trip because he didn't want a backpack and I did. So I did that. Came back, said, yes, yes, we'll still get married. That's good. Got married. And then very soon after, we headed off. And I was working for a PR firm while studying at night, and I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. And um, he saw a job ad for McKinsey. 
And I thought, oh, that's great. Okay, what's McKinsey? What do they do? What's management consulting? Okay, oh, that sounds interesting. Okay. So I went through the process and and was offered the role as a communication specialist with them. And so part of my role there was to help the consultants with their communication. And part of my role was to run coaching and teaching sort of training workshops. So I started doing it there and I had a long journey with them uh, full-time and so on in the office in Hong Kong and then we moved to New York and then to Tokyo and then to Hong Kong again and back to Australia. And I worked uh, freelance for them for about 15 years. So I worked for firm learning, uh, online learning back in about 2004, maybe 2006, the first stuff we were doing uh, that I was involved with anyway and worked for different practices and helped out in a whole lot of different ways. So I started then and then um, through a few other steps, you know, I got back to Australia and then the, um, oh, which, which financial conniption was it? It was... Um, oh, 2008. Okay, the GFC. Consulting work, so yeah, the GFC. Yeah. We, we, had a few, we had a few financial episodes. Yes, well, we left Hong Kong because <coughs> of the Asian financial crisis and then there was the dot-com thing in New York and then there was the deflation in Japan. And, you know, so we, we sort of had a bit of a tour right. of the, the crises. I'm worried, worried what you've brought to Australia. Yes, <laughs> we've been here a long time, so I don't think we can be guilty of yeah, that. Yeah, wait for the next disaster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so... Uh, where was I going? Oh, that's right. So I actually um, got a big contract with my business partner, now business partner, to teach lawyers. Right. And so we, we did that. Yeah. Yes. So that was the the thing that kept me going through the GFC. We taught lawyers for five years in the end right. and taught them to write legal advice you could read in 30 seconds. Wow. That's a challenge. It was. It was. And I was really nervous because my husband was a lawyer and, you know, they're all terribly smart, aren't they? And I just thought, oh, gosh, how on earth am I going to, like, litigate this with them? And it turned out to be great fun. Right. And litigating it being the thing with some of them. Right. Really great sport. Back and forward. Oh, yes, yes. I'm I'm smarter than you, you're smarter than me type thing. Particularly for the ones, because the firm said, you all will do this program, you know, this problem solving and communication thing, you you will all do it. And so, you know, we got going and that was great. And then you have the stragglers at the end. This was a phenomenon we came across and I've seen it since too. The ones who dodge the draft and you get them all together at the end and you become a bit of a human dartboard. And so you really, you have to bat it back and they love the sport. They love the banter. So it's actually great fun. Yeah. Yeah, great fun. So, so that period, I mean, so you, you listed off a range of countries there. Mm. I, I kind of, I tried to retain them all, but um, <laughs> you were moving around a lot. Yes. It's like a vortex. Four countries in 2001, 14 places for two weeks or more with two children under the age of three. In a year, 14 Working places. part-time for McKinsey for the second half of that year because I didn't expect the rest of that to happen. So can you, I guess, what happened, what, what was going on at that time? I mean, like. Just surviving. How do you deal with it, with children, with husband, with work and so yes, on? Yes, yes. So um, it was tricky. So I think if I'd known I was going in for that, it would have helped a lot. But um, it was just circumstances in Andrew's work that literally blew up and was really unexpected. Yeah. So um, how do we deal with it? Well, just focus very much on the children. Yeah and help them get settled. And they started kindergarten. The older one was two and a bit, I suppose, when this year started. And he had started kindergarten in New York, so we moved him to kindergarten in Hong Kong, in Tokyo. Yeah. He quite enjoyed that. The younger one, who was then 18 months old, said, I go too. Yeah. And he just looked at me and said, and I thought, oh, well, if you want to, okay. 
And so he went with his dummy and, you know, off to kindergarten in this tiny little house in Tokyo. So that was good. So just very much focus on the children. Um, and, you know, I was all in setup mode and exploring it, loving the new city and so on. And then, you know, going back to Australia for a while for a break because I hadn't been home in a few years. And it was like, Oh, oh, well, now I'm staying here for a bit longer because I'm not going back. Okay. Interesting. Um, so. Well, I think we're there for about three months and it's very different visiting yeah. a country as opposed to going back to your home country for a visit. Yeah. It's like, oh, great to see you. Yes, yeah. awesome, fabulous. And then the next time it's like, oh, nice. And the yeah. third time it's like, oh, are you still here? I've got a life. Like, yeah, what are yeah, you yeah. doing here? Leave, leave we've done, yeah, our, we've exactly, done our one catch exactly. up. It's like, yeah, thanks. Okay. So that was quite challenging. Um, then anyway, back to Hong Kong and it was really all about, okay, no holidays, yeah. nothing, settle the kids. Um, particularly our older one was quite unsettled and and he was not four when he said to me, Mum, there's no point making friends. Uh, we move too much and so do they. Because right. expat yeah. communities move. Because everyone's a lot. moving. Yeah. Yeah. Especially and, in a crisis as well, I would have thought. Uh, yeah. Time. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that was very, very troubling to yes. me. So I said to Andrew, Well, next move is Melbourne. That's it. I won't go anywhere else. And I think if I'd had a lot longer there, I would have been much more flexible on that. But it took a lot of work to settle the kids down and, you know, get their behaviour in line and, and all that sort of thing. So um, we ended up being there the second time for about 17 or 18 months and came back to Melbourne after that. And, um, you know, that, that was just, you know, that's just how it was. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they have a real sense of being global citizens, even though they came back at three and a half and five. Right. We came back on my oldest's fifth birthday and um you know, it's the fun things of trying to find kindergarten, three and four-year-old kindergarten simultaneously the October before you come back right. and, and try see how often people will laugh at you, yeah, yeah. you know, with that kind of because request. It's, because it's full. Oh, totally yeah. full. Yeah, yeah, totally full. Um, so I just think it was just survival. Andrew was missing in action for most of it. Yeah. You know, he would leave Tokyo at lunchtime on Sunday and be back at 10 o'clock on Friday night, for example. Uh, he was doing international travel nearly every week. Yeah. Um, he'd been doing the equivalent of that from New York as well, so he just wasn't around much. So it was just the boys and I just, you know, muddling along and doing doing our best, yeah. <laughs> you know, to keep it all together. So it's not, as, it's not as glamorous as it sounds when you sort of London, New York, Tokyo and so on and these, these big cities and moving around, it's, um, it has a cost. Yeah, it does. It, it has a real cost. And I think people say, look, you can move young children, it doesn't matter. And for some children, I think that's true. Some children are a lot more flexible than others. I think mine um, were unsettled yeah. by it all. And now, interestingly, my youngest, he's uh, just turned 23 and he moved to New York in January right. and, you know, really excited about that. And Adam, my older one, is is looking at his options as well. So, they, you know, we've travelled a lot with them since then yes. um, and they love it. Yeah. You know, they love the idea of, of that adventure. Yeah of going off, but it did take a while um, to settle in and they did make friends at school often with children who had had similar experience right. and still actually I think feel like they have a bit more in common with people who've got a different worldview than people who've stayed, you know, with their kindergarten friends, they're still friends with their kindergarten friends and they've yes. still been there through uni. But they didn't necessarily have the same Well, they've had to start so, again. Yeah, they've had to yeah. start again and they're very mindful of the value of actually being able to make new friends. Which is interesting because I've, I've read something before that sort of says that there, there are groups of people who are, as you think you describe, global citizens, but mm. they have more in common with people 
in other cities than they have in common with people mm. in their own city because mm. there's people in their own city who've never moved and people mm. around the world who circulate. So it's yeah. quite an interesting um, yeah, dynamic. There's a book called Third Culture Kids, which really resonated with me, um, where it talks about kids, you know, first culture is kids who grew up and stay in the same country. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, if I'm going to get this right, second culture is the one that you're living next to, if you like, and third culture is the mingling of right. those. Right. And so, yeah, we, we call it, we're a bit nomadic in that regard. Right. You know, there's a nomadic class almost. Yeah. There are a lot of us about there. Whereas your origins, I'm guessing from the potato farming was very stable. Like, like if you go back generation very, by generation uh, by generation. Yes and no. My mother's family and ancestors had moved quite a lot because of teaching. Right. Okay. You no, know, you get moved yeah. a yeah. lot as oh, a yeah. teacher. Um, my father's family came from around the goldfields area in Victoria, yes. and so they had been quite stable. Uh, we moved to our area for a bigger farm and and so on yeah. when I was four. So. I guess my father's family had been a lot more stable, but yeah. they, they'd moved from Cornwall in the 1850s right. for opportunity and, yeah. you know, they were hungry, so they thought they'd go somewhere where there might be golden food, yeah. you know. Good yeah. choice. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. You're a teacher, but what are the lessons that you've learned yourself along the along the journey? Well, I think the one key one that I've learned is to use my sleep as an indicator as to whether I should tackle something or tolerate it. If I stop sleeping my sleeping starts to become too light, that means I should tackle something. And it's, it's worth really working out what that is. And I think in my adult life, I've, I've spent far too much time tolerating things I shouldn't. And so that's been, been quite a, a recent sort of aha, I suppose. So quite, quite important. So, and, and, and that means like not being able to get to sleep or waking up a lot through the night? And... I'll typically wake about three. Yeah. Yeah. We've had... Right you know, four, five hours yeah. sleep, maybe six. Yeah. And then I am like, then my mind is going and, so, and becoming really aware of what my mind is focusing on and it'll be going back to the same things again and again. And so when that starts happening, it's, it's right. What am I going to do about that? Yeah. Right. I'm going to, and I just say to myself, right, I'm going to sort that out either now or tomorrow. Yeah. And, um, maybe make a note and then, right, I'm going to sort it out, say to myself, I'm going to sort that out tomorrow yeah. and then I'll be able to go back to sleep because I've delegated it to myself. Right. Sometimes I'll email myself. You but know, but then you can actually go back to sleep as yeah, long as you, yeah. Because I've, I've named it. Yeah. So, right, I've got to solve that. Yeah. Done. Right, so I'll move on. And it might take ages to solve. Sometimes these are hard things. Yes. But um, once I've made a decision to solve it, yeah. then to tackle it, then that helps a lot. It helps a lot. So I think that's been a really useful sort of indicator. Um, second one might be a bit silly, but um, my, my we used to run the clocks on Victorian time in our house because my mother hated getting up early in the morning. Yeah. And that way she could pretend we're getting the bus at 8 in the morning, not 7.30. Oh, because uh, the, mm. the border. Yep. The border. And so I grew up with this idea that getting up in the early in the morning just was just not a thing. It's yeah. just something you just don't do. It's just not not good. And yet I actually quite, I'm quite wired to get up reasonably early. So it's a bit of a paradox. So my husband started coming to the gym with me and he wanted to go at 6 in the morning. Okay. And for a while he went at 6 and I went at 7. And I thought, well, that's nuts, isn't yeah. it? I should just give it a go. And I quite like it now. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can actually shift these things. Yeah. You know, you can teach an old an old duck new tricks yeah. to use your 
term before. Um, we could operate on New Zealand time if it makes you feel better. It's eight, eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that yeah. hack. Auckland okay. time. Yeah, Auckland time. Okay, I go to the gym at 8 a.m. Auckland time. There you yeah, go. There that, you that's go. Yeah, good. And the third one, we've always got to have three, don't we? So the third one. Um, I think I grew up with an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and that partly just comes from being the oldest child, um, but particularly the oldest of four with two of them being really young. And I think that was there were times when that was very useful. However, I took it to a place which was unhelpful for me. And I think unhelpful for my clients too. I've been chipping away at that in in the way I teach too. And it's okay, so it's not my job for you to learn. It's your job to learn. And so, yes, I do expect you to do your homework and I'll have banter with you and laugh with you about all of that. But yeah, twinkle in the eye, but you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And um, okay, so we're together here. It's not going to be me lecturing you. I'm going to help you dig more deeply into the things that you have learnt already because you have done your homework. And uh, now I'm going to pop you in groups and get you to actually do the thing. And then we'll come back and we'll debrief and we'll discuss. And so just feeling more and more comfortable with that and in business with you know, team members, business partners, all of those sorts of just dynamics and being, um, you know, feeling I, I, I don't have to do everything. Yes. You know, it was quite a, a bit of an aha to realise that that was just an embedded assumption, yeah. which was silly, wasn't it? So but- it's really up to the person to be motivated. <clears throat> if they're not motivated, you can't, you can't change that. Mm, exactly. Yeah. But also I shouldn't do it for them. I shouldn't do everything. I don't have to. So, so when you have a, a student or a, on, on one of your courses, do you, I guess do you evaluate your own success with each individual that comes through, or do you look at it more? How, how do you think about that, like the results? Um, both ways, actually. If I feel like I haven't really engaged someone, I really wrestle with yeah. why that is, and I want to know and, and think, what could I have done differently? What yeah. could I have done better? Um, so I definitely think about it on that level, and and also reflect a bit on you know what did go well. I actually listened to a great podcast this week, and they were talking about um, you know why is it people say they only learn from their failures? Well, because you only debrief on your failures, you don't debrief on your successes. Yeah. It's not that you can't, yes. you know, you can't. So I thought that was a bit of a, ah, yes, okay, ought to do that more. Yeah. Um, but also I collect data. Right. So I've got a dashboard now which I've developed over the last year or so yeah. where I've got some, some people think are fairly unusual questions, but which align to that clarity, quality, velocity, yeah. you know, the three dimensions. And so I watch the data. Right. And I'm really interested in different clients. The results are startlingly different. Right. And it is where, you know, where the leaders are involved and driving the change, not just people coming in and learning, for example, is one of the dimensions that I've noticed. Right. Uh, another one is when I'm working with analytics professionals or people who are really deep in the detail yes. and, and need to um, provide findings of research. Yeah. The the dynamic there is is really fabulous. You know, the shift is right. is quite marked. Um, so I think there's those two dimensions. So, you know, and then I might look at the results from a group and think, oh, it's not quite what I'd expected. I wonder what happened there and, yeah. and really reflect on, you know, the positive and the negative as to why. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you, you, you wrote a book that kind of explains your – principles it's mm-hmm. called the so what strategy mm-hmm. uh, so I wanted at some point in the question in the, in the interview to ask you so what um, <laughs> <laughs> so what, what? So what? <laughs> um, but I guess when I guess maybe when you when you look back and you think 
I don't know why am I doing this. So so what? I'm asking the right question. Uh, yes, you <laughs> am are. I using yeah. it correctly? Yeah, you are. Uh, yeah. So let's finish up by asking yeah. you, Davina. So what? Yeah. So what? So what? Why, why do I do it? Because I really enjoy it, and I think it helps people such a lot. You know, I had this such a great privilege of. Uh, working in an environment that had really high standards and learning the methodology, sitting in a room with the videos, Barbara Minto's videos, uh, being accredited by Barbara Minto, approved by Barbara Minto to actually teach the stuff as well. So I just think that um, I've been given such an opportunity um, to help people with something. Um, and I look look at my work, of course, of helping my corporate clients. Yes. I look at the value at a corporate level. Yeah. Um, but I also love just helping individuals. And so I just really enjoy helping people. That's, there you go. It's that simple. It's, it's simple not fancy. It's well, that I guess simple. it's all about it's all about the clarity of communication and, and getting to the nub of the message. So maybe that's what it is. It's just uh, helping people. So yeah. thank you. Thank you pleasure. for helping people. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Really great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.